Welcome to the American Grown Podcast, hosted by Austin Sullivan. The American Grown Podcast will focus on people from different walks of life and their journey to where they are now. Now, turn up your volume and settle in for a great episode. Hi, I'm Austin Sullivan. This is the American Grown Podcast, recorded inside the ColorTech Creative Solutions Studios. Today, we have Fred Long, attorney at Long Brightville Attorneys at Law. He specializes in estate planning, business formation, real estate transactions. Fred, welcome to episode 27 of the American Grown Podcast. Thanks, Austin. Thanks for having me. You were probably, I was just thinking about this the other day, you're probably like the top five listeners. You know, I got my mom to the podcast. <laughs> I have one of my good buddies. And then from what I hear, you're like an avid listener. I love it. Yeah. I think I've listened to, I think I've listened to every episode and um, I love what you do. I, I, I think we talked about a little bit before we got started that one of the things that I think you and I have in common is just a, an interest in other people and listening to their stories. And um, so I love it. Oh, I appreciate the support and, and the listens because uh, it's kind of like a side project, you know, and like you said, we've talked uh, quite a bit about it over the phone and, and through emails. I think last year sometime over the fall, maybe, or, or maybe even last summer, you had reached out. I think it was. So, yeah. You know, it seems like it's been forever, but uh, to finally get you on and get you here, I'm excited. So for all the listeners, what was it like growing up here in Lebanon County? I think, you know, your family's been in Lebanon County for quite some time. Yeah, I believe that I am a sixth or seventh generation Lebanon Countyan. Growing up here was amazing. I'm the youngest of four children. My parents are both really, like, awesome, genuinely good uh, people. They're both examples to me of um, hard work, people who really care about the work that they put into the world, but also prioritize family. My mom was a teacher. She started teaching, I believe, fourth or fifth grade. And did you say you went to Kutztown? Yeah. My mom went to Kutztown. No way. Oh, Um, wow. And when she, she took some time off to raise uh, her, her children, and then because I'm the youngest, when I went to kindergarten, she went back into teaching and finished out her career teaching ESL, English oh, yeah. as a Second Language, and also teaching children with special needs. And she worked for the rest of her uh, career, retired, I think, three years ago. My dad is an attorney. Uh, he's my, my partner, or one of my partners. He spent, I think, the first 16 years of his career in public service. He was an assistant district attorney and then was the district attorney in Lebanon County for four years. And that was at a time when that position was part-time. So during the time that he was working in the DA's office, he was also building a private practice. So he is, again, an example of somebody who works really hard, but all the while he was my baseball coach, he was my assistant soccer coach, he and my mom would drive 45 minutes both ways to play for me to play ice hockey and travel soccer and sports tournaments on the weekends. And so, um, again, just 
an example of somebody who he sounds like a great dad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he had a lot, a lot on his plate, but yet he still prioritized right know, family. Um, so shout out to Mr. Long if you're listening. Awesome job. Keep it up. Yeah, I appreciate that. And not only for me too, for all for my three siblings as well. We were all pretty active kids, and they were very involved. So being the youngest of uh, being the youngest, do you ever feel like you had to? to better your siblings? No, actually, it was kind of nice because I just kind of got to fly under the radar, which is exactly where I wanted to be. Okay. Definitely have a really good relationship with all three of my siblings, but definitely was happy to kind of uh, sit back and learn from them, but not necessarily yeah. in, a, in a competitive not way. Not competitive like yeah. that. All right, gotcha. Maybe a little bit with my brother, but yeah. I have two older sisters too. Okay, and uh, just curious, what does your, your brother do? He's a realtor. So oh, okay. there's a lot of my, my, a lot of real estate in my family. My dad is a real estate lawyer. My brother's a realtor. My sister is a broke, real estate broker. So that's something that we talk about at Thanksgiving oh, and Christmas dinner. <laughs> Some interesting conversations. Now, are they all in Lebanon County? Or? Uh, a little bit spread out. My brother lives in Lebanon. He's married. He has three kids, two twin, two-year-olds. So he's got his hands full. Wow. Uh, but he also really hard worker. Uh, my sister, Katie, lives in Fort Worth, Texas, and my oldest sister, Tori, lives in Truckee, California. So a little bit spread out, but we, like I was just with my sister last week in South Carolina, my sister, Katie, and my older sister's flying into Harrisburg tonight, so we still... Oh, that's great. Yeah, we, and, and credit to them, I think more than myself, they really make an effort to get home and... and yeah. And, and keep in touch like that, even though you're kind of spread out a little bit, you know, having kids and then your and your family's growing up together to still be in touch like that. Is yeah. Great. yeah. Yeah. It's important for my parents, my mom. So uh, between the four of us, there are nine grandkids. So for my parents, I think it's pretty awesome to, yeah. to be able to spend so much time with all of That's them. That's really cool. What high school was it? Uh, Lebanon Cedar Crest or were you guys more Anvil Elko? Uh, Cedar Crest started in Lebanon. The, I grew up uh, the first four years, I grew up on Oak Street, and that was in Lebanon School District. So my brother and my sisters went to Southwest Elementary School in uh, Lebanon School District. And then we moved to Cedar Crest School District when I was four or five in roughly 1990. And so where we moved, it was kind of like right down the street, probably. I would exaggerate if I said that I could throw a football this far but my yeah. grandparents lived um right down the street okay and one said my my mom's parents lived right down the street and then my dad's parents lived maybe a mile down the road so one of the things that i'm probably most grateful for in my childhood is having an opportunity to grow up with my four grandparents they were really active in my life again examples of people who really worked hard and really care about what they did, uh, but also prioritize family. My grandfather, um, who I'm named after, his name is Fred, or was Fred Shea, he was uh, a pilot, and he flew B-25 and B-26 bomber pilots Whoa. in Europe in World War II. So, so like legit pilot not just like a you know he owned it and did it on the weekends kind yeah. of thing yeah. later in life he did he right. ended up um after the war he worked at the reading airport and then he formed lancaster aviation 
which I don't know that it's still around in this with the same name, mm-hmm. but I'm pretty sure that I know the Lancaster airport's still there. It's oh, in, yeah. I think it's in Lidditz. Lidditz. Yeah. So he, um, he flew B-25, B-26 and then in, in Europe and then flew, um, an A-26, a Douglas A-26 in the Pacific combined. He flew 87 bombing missions. Wow. So, statistically the likelihood that he survived was was pretty low so that's something that i kind of think back on and like not only for me but if you think about all of the things in life that have to happen for us to be here oh yeah it's pretty incredible you're right i heard a saying everything that's happened in the past has led up to this moment right here to this second you know to this sentence and it is kind of crazy to when you say it like that because you had something happened to him during one of those missions it'd be a completely different story totally different totally. i wouldn't i wouldn't i wouldn't probably, be, here. My, probably wouldn't be here my mom yeah. wouldn't be here she was born after the war so my three siblings her wow. her nine grandchildren um and i'll tell you a story about him so he yeah, loved a, anybody yeah, yeah. who knew him would describe him as a character um after europe he volunteered to go back to the pacific and he always claimed that the reason he did that is because the military had just released the Douglas A-26 bomber plane, which was a, a purpose-built, lightweight bomber and ground attack okay. plane. Yeah. And he claimed that he wanted to fly the fastest bombing plane in the world. Oh, wow. So he was back in the United States in South Carolina training on the A-26. And the day before he left to go to the Pacific... The, the plan was to fly from South Carolina to California to Hawaii, and then they were going to island hop to okay. Okinawa in Japan, where he was eventually stationed. So the day before he left, he was on a training mission and flew to Lebanon. And when he got here, lined up Lehman Street on one end and did a low fly just above tree level from one end of Lehman Street to the other, and then flew back to South Carolina called his parents and said, hey, um, just checking in, leaving tomorrow, anything interesting going on in Lebanon? And they said, uh, yeah, this plane flew by really low, and people were kind of freaking out. They thought we were under attack. (laughs) And he said, well, I'm sorry to to scare you. That That was me. And apparently his dad didn't believe him because he didn't think that it would be possible for him to get all the way back to South Carolina. The technology and, and, yeah, to be able to fly that fast. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so um my grandfather's a badass. Yeah. He's an awesome guy, seriously. Yeah. yeah. And so is and my yeah. and my grandmother who's uh his wife Pat Shea, who's still alive, she's 97 years old, lives okay. on, on oh, her that's own. Okay. great. 97 yeah. years old. And she's yeah, sharp. She's she had awesome. a, a didn't always have an easy life, but um I I really like try to um see her yeah we, we usually get together she comes to my parents house for sunday dinners and um i try to get to see her at her house every now and then and she's like got the best sense of humor yeah what do you think the key is to that i mean to be 97 to have a sharp memory to live on your own what she do right i think it's i mean when i think back on my grandparents and it's like one of those things where i don't i i always struggled with trying to fill their shoes or try to live up to their to what they did and what their expectations of me were but in reality they just viewed me as as their their grandson and somebody who they loved and i think for them 
a lot of it was about finding meaning in, in what they do in their life. And whether that's, um, through service or through their, their normal everyday job or volunteer work, I think, um, if I could pinpoint one thing, that's something that they all had in common. And, and maybe a lot of it has to do with family too. just keep going because my grandma still gets to hang out with her, with her grandchildren or great grandchildren. Yeah. Um, and, and see them grow up. I think finding meaning has a lot to do with it because if you're not happy with what you're doing in life or you're not fulfilled with what you're doing, you know, you may turn to other things, over drinking, smoking, you know, things that could really affect your health. And again, maybe I'm thinking too much into this, but to be 97, living on your own and, and like you said, to see your great grandchildren like that, I think that's phenomenal. Yeah. And I, I, I think, no, I don't think you're thinking too much. I think it's exactly right. I, I also think that that generation didn't even really have to think about it as much as we do now. You know, we live a really comfortable life now. And Mm -hmm. I think that's probably something that we struggle with more than they did. It was like, for them, this is just what they had to do. Oh, I agree. They didn't have a choice. It's not like, you know, got an opportunity to sit back and think about what they could do with their lives that would have the biggest impact. It was just, that's what, that's what they were yeah. called upon to do their mothers or their grandfathers were were in this business and they, they continued it and yeah nowadays there's a lot of things TikTok and caught up watching football all sunday whatever it is yeah back then that generation they didn't what do i want to say they didn't have the comfort i think they didn't yeah, have the, the, the comfort yes uh, the space to like yeah maybe i shouldn't say nonsense but really it is when i think about it yeah it's a challenge that's a great way to put it it is a challenge and some cases it's necessary to grow a business or to push a service but uh it's easy to to let it go beyond that though like it you can go into it with good intentions i i was off of social media for probably about six or seven years and then thought you know what i thought that i could rejoin and use it for business purposes but it's easy to get sucked back Mm -hmm. into you know it's and and it's purposefully designed that way too right and it's like one thing i learned is i'm not smarter than the tech gurus that work for social media companies so yeah if if i put my eyes on that screen they're gonna Mm -hmm. they're gonna grab me yeah with their algorithms and all that let's circle back in high school we were talking a little bit before we pressed record here um we actually had the same teacher steve miller mr miller at cedar crest yeah you know i had him for it was like the graphic arts and you had him for i think you were saying maybe some photography, but also for, for arts outside of that. Yeah. So when I was in ninth grade, I took a photography course. I think when I was there, they had photography one, photography two. So photography one was the first time that I had any introduction to 35 millimeter film. It was really cool because you would, they taught you how to use the camera and then how to there was like a process where you had to pull out the film but it couldn't be exposed Exposed to light yep and then you would process it in the dark room so there was this like almost like when you're going into hotel you're going through the revolving door yeah it was like that but it was all blacked out so on one end is the classroom you go into this dark revolving door and then on the other end you end up in the dark room and using chemicals to expose the the film to light but not too much light so that that was that was just kind of like a really cool 
thing to me when you're in high school and you're learning about all these things that frankly I wasn't really that interested yeah. in but then to have something that was kind of more hands-on so then I ended up taking photography too with Mr. Miller mm-hmm. and then I took two independent study courses for photography with him as well so that became a real passion for me and I I loved it and it was something that I I really wanted to do professionally but obviously that that didn't it didn't pan out that way yeah the reason i I brought that up because this is first time i've ever met you even though we've lived in i've lived in lebanon all my life you've been here for many generations your family so it's a small world and when you mentioned mr miller and photography in the dark room i i I remember that now you graduated uh cedar crest 2004 5 2004 okay and i graduated 2011 like to hear that you went through a similar experience that I did with that dark room. Cause I remember, like you said, the revolving door, you'd go in and it was all red light, you know, um, for the, the listeners out there, because now everything's digital. I don't even know if they teach uh, film anymore in school. Yeah. I don't think they do. I, I, I doubt. I don't it. know why they, why they, they would, I guess. Right. Yeah. I guess that's true. It is kind of a, a dying uh, art or skill, but um, I don't even, I, I don't like, I try to buy a camera and this was like, 15 years ago, a 35 yeah. millimeter camera, and I couldn't find one. Yeah, it's I know they hard. still make the film, but they, I think it's hard to find. It's very hard to find. Yeah, they, they still sell the film, but again, of course, the prices of that are, are up because it's such a rare, you know, thing. But for, for all the listeners out there, it wasn't, you know, just pull out your iPhone or pull out your camera and perfect exposure, perfect lighting, and you just took a bunch of pictures. It was a, a whole nother thing. So I just thought that was a real neat experience that we both had. You know, um, I'll say yeah. one more thing about Mr. Miller. And I'll never forget this advice. He said, and I think this actually applies now, even though everything's digital. He said that I think a 35 millimeter roll, standard roll would have like 30 or 40 pictures maybe. And he used to tell us that if you would get one good picture out of an entire roll, then you're, you're good to go. And that stuck with me. And I still think about that. Like I, when I take pictures, um, a family or, or whatever, you can try as much, and you know this more than, more than, more than, yeah, way more oh, yeah. than I do, but you can try to get the right lighting, the right moment. But the best practice is just to take a whole lot of pictures because oh, yeah. you're going to increase the chances that you have a good that, one. That you catch a good one. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And uh, what, what Fred is referencing for those that don't know, you know, the American Girl podcast, the studios inside of Color Tech Creative Solutions, which has a division called Blue Cardinal Photography, and that's our local uh, sports photography. We do headshots, product photography, and, and all that stuff, video, drones. And back when I was in high school in 2011, I was in the newspaper, the Talon, and that's kind of where I started dabbling in sports photography. And then from there, here at the, the family business, and uh, actually, we did some freelancing on my own and got to shoot at uh, Madison Square Garden, uh, Lincoln Financial Field, and and so forth. But needless to say, um, yeah. What, do you mind if I ask what? Please, yeah. What was the opportunity that you had at uh, Madison Square Garden and Lincoln Financial? Yeah. So, Lincoln Financial was myself just reaching out to athletic directors, um, Temple University. I would just email them some of my photos of local, you know, sports shots that I got here, maybe a Cedar Bowl or a Palmyra ice hockey, something like that. And yeah, they actually agreed. They pay me a certain amount and I would go there and photograph football, send them all the pictures and, and I would get paid. So that's how I got to awesome. Lincoln Financial Field. Yeah. The one at 
uh, Madison Square Garden is uh, my father-in-law. Shout out John Garloff. He's another listener, and I greatly appreciate that. He's the one that turned me on to bourbon. Uh, before John, I don't think I drank at all. But uh, with that, I actually went to Madison Square Garden to photograph Louisville, their men's uh, basketball was That's playing. That's awesome. So, yeah, it was... Were you on the floor? I was. Oh, yeah. I was right there on the floor. Um, now, that one I didn't get paid for, but again, that's fine. It was yeah. the experience, you know? So, that was like, gosh, 2015-16, maybe even 2017 a little bit. But uh, from there, you know, you just you get caught up in other things. The business here at ColorTech is, is growing. I'm more involved with it than I was back then. So, for you, Fred, you know, it was college and then law school. Was that always in the plans for you? Um, college, pretty much, that was kind of the direction, like, my, my parents were, they never really pushed me to do anything in particular, um, but I think at that time, in the early 2000s, that was, like, the path for Mm -hmm. most people, um, and I don't want to digress too much, but I think, um, there was a lot of opportunity outside of going to college that I hadn't really considered at the time going to a trade school or um, learning at Votech and going into a trade. I think it, 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 fast forward from 2004 to when I graduated from college in 2008, there was a recession Mm -hmm. and it was really hard to get a professional job. And so kids that I was in high school with that went into trade, they were pretty well set up. They didn't have college debt. They had a four year head start on working. And so, so I don't, I mean, I'm a hundred percent grateful. I have no, there's no doubt whatsoever that this turned out to be the right path for me. I went to college in 2004. I graduated from Susquehanna university in 2008. At that time I was in college. I kind of struggled with what I wanted to do, I think a lot of kids do, but I struggled with what I wanted to do with my life. At the time, I was majoring in journalism. Okay. And my what we had talked about before, photography and journalism, I had this idea that I wanted to be a photojournalist. Oh, yeah. And I loved writing. I loved photography. And so the two things combined seemed to Perfect. be a, a pretty good fit. At the same time, um, the war in Iraq and Afghanistan was going on and I had this kind of grandiose idea that I was going to go and, and be involved in that way. Yeah. Um, my mind went right there. I was like, you could have been a photojournalist like on the front lines. I was literally just thinking that as you say it. So at that time, that that was kind of a real, a real possibility. I thought about going to the service. I talked to my grandfather who I mentioned earlier about his opinion and he, he kind of just, dissuaded me a little bit you know it was a different war than what he was involved in so there are a couple factors uh, that led me to law school from college one was the economy so the year that I was graduating in 2008 was the start of the recession and at that time people who had 30-year careers decades-long careers were being laid off right and there weren't Oh, there weren't many jobs available for people coming out of college at that time. Another factor, more importantly, was I met my now wife. We were dating for about a year and a half. She went to Susquehanna University as well. 
And she, I have to give a shout out to her yeah, because um, when we met, I was, I didn't have my act together at all. No? Uh, no. No. And she did. She always had really super responsible, very mature. And I knew that I really liked her. And yeah. if we were going to hang out together that she like, she probably wouldn't <laughs> like, you know, yeah. like I was going down a bad path. So okay. I kind of got my act together for her and she grew up in York County, Pennsylvania. Oh yeah. Yeah. So close to home. So her family's still there. Had a similar upbringing than I did. Her grandparents uh, were really active in her, in her life. And so I figured that if I, if we were going to end up together, then there was a pretty high probability that we would stay somewhat local. If I hadn't met her, the truth is I probably would be living in like Colorado or somewhere in the mountains. And, uh, I'm glad, I'm glad that yeah, we met. It worked out. Uh, it really, it, yeah, it really did. So when you say you had to get your, your act together, you know, in college, were you kind of like a, a bad boy partier or what, what were you like back then? I wouldn't, I, I wasn't, I wasn't bad. I think I always had a really strong moral compass, which I credit to my parents. Right. Um, but just getting into trouble, you know, like partying, um, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's good you realized and like, hey, I got to get yeah get with it, you know? Well, yeah. I think she made me realize it. And that's, okay. that's why I, I give her yeah. a lot of credit. And maybe it was just meant to be, but it was kind of a turning point. Maybe one of the early turning points in my life. So because it was kind of the writing was on the wall that we if if we were going to stay together then we would probably end up here working as an attorney my dad we have a small law firm so I figured that was like a a safe harbor Mm -hmm. it was like a a decision that was maybe in part risk aversion security job security oh yeah Um, with all the uncertainty all the uncertainty going on at that time yeah yeah so smart move I took a year off so I kind of made that decision to go to law school the last semester in college. And I took a year off between college and law school. And you and I were talking before we got started about your relationship with your grandfather and being able to hang out with him and spend time with him and how meaningful that is to you. Mm -hmm. And I, during that year that I was, was off, I had that opportunity with my grandfather Um, not the, not Fred, the, my grandfather that I shared with you earlier, but my other grandfather, his name was Ted Long. He was an ophthalmologist in Lebanon, super bright. He had a photographic memory. So he was just like the sharpest person I think I ever met in my life. He went to Lebanon Valley college and then got a full scholarship to the university of Pennsylvania medical school did his residency at Will's Eye Hospital in Philadelphia, which at that time, that would have been late 30s, early 40s, was the top-ranked eye hospital in the country. And I think it's still like number one or number two. So he did his residency in, in Philadelphia and then came back to Lebanon. And for a really long time, I think he was the only ophthalmologist in, in Lebanon County. He was like the the king of moderation so okay. talking about your love of bourbon he would drink canadian whiskey but he he always told me that his routine was to have two fingers of whiskey yeah, yeah. after dinner okay 
unless he had surgery the next day, then he would only have one. Yes. Because it would make his hands a, <laughs> a little, little shaky. Oh, that's awesome. But he was like a, a really wise man with a really kind heart. And I'll tell you a story about him. So that year that I was hanging out with him, I would take him grocery shopping, take him to his doctor's appointments. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just we spent a lot of time together. He was 96 when he died. And as he was actively dying, um, leading up to that, three days before he passed away, I was with him and he told me this story about he was on a hospital ship in World War II and on the USS Refuge. And they brought back the first troops from Normandy, from D-Day. And as he's telling me the story, he told me the date that they landed in Newport News, Virginia, the number of patients that were on board, the number of patients that had eye injuries, the number of doctors that were on board, wow. the number of uh, nurses that were on board. So that's how, how sharp he was, yeah, was uh, leading tax, up to the day that he passed sharp, away. Yeah. And then a, a side story to this, my mom is a history buff. And okay. she's also really into ancestry. So she, in like the early days of the internet, she really figured out how to use the internet to find out information about her family, our family, and then interesting tidbits about the war and, and other history, um, anything that she was really interested in. So we never had a photograph of the ship, the hospital ship that my grandfather was on. So she put, I don't know what you would call it, but on eBay like a request or something so that if anything would ever pop up, she would get a notification. The day that my grandfather died, she got an email or an eBay notification yeah. that a photograph of his hospital ship was available. So she purchased it. So I, it's actually one of the things that I brought in. Okay. Um, yeah, I'll please. Show you. Yeah, yeah. That's crazy. So the day that he passed, this notification came up. So your mom, she was Ancestry.com before there was yeah. Ancestry.com. Yeah. Whoa. So that picture that. is the hospital ship coming in to harbor to New Newport News, Virginia. I think it was June 29th, 1945. Wow. The story that he was telling me about three days before. That's what he was telling. That's the story that he was telling me. Wow. So What are the odds? So when I was like, I was looking into this a little bit. And there was a part of this story that I forgot about until yesterday when I went over to my parents' house to grab that photo because I wanted to bring it in to show you. Yeah. So he had this little I saw that when tiny you book. It. Yeah. And um, what this is, it's an address book. Here, I'll pass it over to okay. you. Okay. So for people who are listening, this is, it's like three inches by oh, two yeah. inches. It's a really tiny really address small. book. Yeah. And they weren't allowed to keep a journal. So he would write notes in this little book um, about all the places that he, that, wow. that, that, that the ship went. Somebody from my family transcribed all the entries because you can tell they're tiny and they're in cursive and they're hard to read. Yeah. So as I was looking through this wow. yesterday, I found this entry from the date. And I'm sorry, I think I said June 29th. It was Ju July 29, 1944 there was an entry in his book that says arrived Norfolk at 10 a.m. 
unloaded 108 Army patients at Newport News, balance at Norfolk, received letter from Velma, who's my grandmother, his wife, Uh hinting that son was born July 8th. Verified fact on telephoning to Velma, mother, son, and daughter fine. Hoorah. Request for leave refused. Oh. So so then it details, then he went back overseas for another year after that. Um, That is amazing that you have this. I mean, this is history, not only your family history, but American history. And to have that write up, you know, it's a shame they denied him leave, but wow, you know, like, what what are the odds that this would all come together? You know, the eBay notification and everything. Yeah. That's kind of mind-blowing. It's really. a cool, yeah, it's a cool it's story. Like, and then my grandmother, and, and even though leave was requested, I can tell you that anybody that knew her would say that she was doing just fine. Yeah. She was a tough woman. She was kind of our family protector. She was tough, but she would do anything for for her family. Yeah. And I think about... I think about them a lot and how fortunate I am to have been so close to them mm-hmm. and to actually really have an opportunity to know them and not just necessar- not just looking back on, on the photographs and the things that they did, but actually having a, a meaningful opportunity. And that's why I, I, I think it's so cool that you have that relationship with your grandfather. Um, and I wish that for, for everybody. Now, oh, obviously, sure. I'm sure there are people that have good reason for not having close relationships with their family. Mm-hmm. But if if you have that opportunity, it's definitely something that's worth worth taking advantage of. Oh, I, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, it's it's time that you won't get back. So for the listeners out there, you know, I know some are, are, are younger, high school, college age definitely appreciate your grandparents if they're still around spend time with them try to learn as much as you can about uh, their life and what they know because you know once they're once they're not here you lose that you lose that knowledge you you lose that uh that information so it's it's definitely i think a blessing for you that you got to spend that time with your grandfather ted and for myself and my grandfather pat uh he he's a bit of a nut but uh, we love him you know and, and my dad would tell you the same thing you know they they broke the mold when they made my grandfather but uh, <laughs> i've learned a lot from him so yeah this is this is really neat fred so uh, it sounds to me like ted long your grandfather was one of your mentors did you have any others that also left an impact i think outside of my family when i went to law school it was either the summer I think it was the summer after my first year in law school, I started an internship at the Lebanon County District Attorney's Office. And then I ended up kind of with similar to photography. I liked it so much that I went back and I think I did like three or four internships over the course of the three years that I was in law school. And then when I graduated from law school, I worked as an assistant district attorney in the Lebanon County District Attorney's Office for about a year and a half. The district attorney at that time was Dave Arnold, who has since passed away, but he Mm -hmm. and everybody in that office were real mentors to me. They taught me the value of preparation and hard work. Um, They taught me how to be a trial lawyer, and they really laid the foundation for, uh, for who I am and how I approach the practice of law. 
I look back on that time as being invaluable because I was getting courtroom experience. I was doing really fortunate to be able to do some trial work, jury trials, um, bench trials, which is a, a trial just w without a jury in front of a judge. Uh, a lot of different, basically you're in court three, four days a week. And in order to do that effectively, there's the right way to do it and the wrong way to do it. And they taught me the right way to do it. And without their influence, um, I think it would have been really hard. And I think it probably is really hard for lawyers who don't have that level of mentorship to feel comfortable in the courtroom. So really grateful. And again, it wasn't just uh, Dave Arnold. It was everybody else in that office went way above and beyond to take time to teach. And so I, I really am grateful for them. Yeah. How did Long, Brightbill, and Attorneys at Law, how'd that come about? The firm has been in continuous existence since 1902 and has wow. changed names over the course of years as the, the partners okay. uh, retired or, or eventually passed away. So when I started practicing 2012, about 11 years ago, the firm was uh, Secrets, Kohler, Brightbill, Long, and Feeman. So it's kind of a mouthful. Yeah. And in 2014, we decided to condense it a little bit to Long, Brightbill. So since 2014, the firm has been called Long, Brightbill. And so we have five attorneys, five staff, and I am extremely grateful to, to be there, to work with the people that I work with. Let's go over some of the, I mean, some of the services that you offer there for the listeners, uh, especially a lot of our listeners are here in Lebanon County, and maybe they're not familiar with yourself or, you know, the law firm. Yeah, so I do primarily estate planning, business law, and real estate. Um, and those practice areas have kind of evolved over the course of my career, um, but I'm really, like, really grateful to be able to have narrowed the focus of my practice to those three areas. So with estate planning, and this is something I'd love to get into more, that's when you draft wills, power of attorney, trusts, um, living wills, some people call them advanced medical directives, um, we're talking about beneficiary designations on life insurance and uh, retirement accounts and things like that, making sure that we have a cohesive plan to manage someone's legal affairs, financial affairs, medical affairs in the event that they become incapacitated or, or pass away. So that's probably of, of the three practice areas that I, I, business law is something that is more of a, an interest. It's always been an interest for me. And we, we talked about being involved in a small business. I really like working with, with business people and real estate because I think of the family dynamic um, has always been... It's been in your some, life yeah. and, and a forefront in your life. Before we get into what separates you from your competitors, maybe let's do a deeper dive into estate planning. It's something new that I guess I never really thought about. Um, I didn't even know it was a much of a thing. I knew there was a will and things like that, but uh, loved it no more because I think on the form you had mentioned, uh, you mentioned like cryptocurrencies too and NFTs and being able to access your social media, for lack of a better term, assets. Maybe that's what I'm looking for. So yeah, I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah. And I, I love talking about this. So, yeah, this is, yeah. so 
This really, estate planning for me, and I don't want to go too far overboard on this, but um, we had talked about the importance of finding meaning in the work that you do. Yep. And I will, I think it's worthwhile exploring how I, how I got here. I spent the first four or five, six years of my career doing a lot of different things, a little bit of, of a lot of different things. There was and still is and always probably unfortunately will be a need for people who are navigating the criminal just justice system and family law. So I was doing a lot of family law work and then after I left the district attorney's office I was doing criminal defense and I felt naively that there was an opportunity and, and I think that, and I hope that there was some impact, but I felt like there was an opportunity to really help people who were going through those experiences in life. And I felt like I had a prescription that I could help them, yeah. you know, do the right thing to kind of get their life back on track. And I ended up getting burnt out by it. What I found is that very often, I don't want to, I don't want to paint these folks um, with a broad brush, but very often what I found is that people who are going through, who need lawyers to go through the family law system or the criminal justice system, that they don't have life, I'm sorry, they don't have legal problems, mm -hmm. that they have life problems. Okay. That manifest in the form of a legal problem. Yeah. And Makes sense. while I could help them with their legal problem, it's not really what they need. What they need is somebody to help them with their life issues. I could help them with their legal problem, but then they would come back. And while that might be good for business, it wasn't good for morale because that's not why I, I did it. Right. So I actually uh, went through a pretty difficult period about five years ago where I wasn't sure that I wanted to be a lawyer anymore. And I obviously had no idea what I would do with my life. I would say it lasted about three or four months. And toward the end of it, I kind of sat back and, and really focused on what about the work I do that I actually enjoy or that I might be able to find meaning in. Yeah, oh, for sure. And so one of my favorite things to do is to sit with people while we're talking about um, death and contemplating death or dealing, working with people, collaborating with people who may have just lost a loved one. And so, Austin, the stories that I shared with you about my family those aren't unique to me. Everybody has a story. And oh, I think yeah. if you give them space to mm -hmm. tell that story, they will talk to you about the most amazing things. And I find that when, when we're talking about, and it sounds kind of silly maybe, but talking about estate planning, but we are really talking about the end or some serious illness, incapacity, death. Right. It's a little grim of, of a subject, but yet it's one that, in my view, that if you talk about it and plan for it, it doesn't have to be, I don't want to say, maybe as as, as tough in the moment. You know, if, if, if you're prepared for the worst case scenario, then when that does happen, you know what I mean, you'll, you'll be better off. 
You are what you say? hundred percent spot I, on. I nailed it. Okay. You you absolutely nailed it. All right, it. I was worried. I'm like, oh, I'm getting in a little deeper. I don't know. No. Yeah. You okay. you nailed it. And and that's where I think that I can find meaning in the work that I do because there's there's a practical side which we talked about. So drafting the documents, planning, you're your helping financial planning, the ease of administration of, of an estate when someone passes away, their tax planning, cost savings, um, time savings. There are practical solutions that, that I'm trained to manage. But to your point, mm-hmm. and I think where the impact really may live is the psychological component of estate planning. So it alleviates the stress right, that right. surrounding your financial affairs, um, how they'll be handled when you become incapacitated or if you become incapacitated or upon death. It alleviates a stress that would otherwise be imposed on your loved ones mm-hmm. who are going through a process, a very difficult time in their lives. Right. And I think what is really special if it's done right is it gives space to honor the life of your loved ones by freeing up energy that is otherwise used up for problem solving that may be created from a lack of of planning yeah i think it's that's where that's where i i really feel like i can make a difference for for people yeah and you had mentioned on the form you really wanted to find meaning in life but also find that balance in life. And I feel like it kind of ties into what we're, we're just talking about that you found meaning in helping others prepare for, you know, I mean, let's be honest, probably it's a fact of life, you know, everyone's got to face it, but it can be grim and there can be um, things that you don't think about that come up, maybe fights amongst the family all of a sudden. And, and what do you go by, you know, if, if it's not prepared ahead of time? Yeah, you're a hundred percent right. And, and, I can't say that careful planning can prevent that from happening 100% of the time, mm-hmm. but it can absolutely reduce significantly the likelihood that you'll run into those problems. That's huge. It's huge yeah. because like it's honestly it's the worst thing to see is when there's a loss of a loved one and then instead of taking the right time to grieve the loss of the loved one all that's going on is trying to figure out what to do or to your point, maybe there's, there's fighting among the family, right? Things are not planned out. No one knows where anything is, where the bank accounts are, whether there's any credit card debt or medical debt that needs to be taken care of. Mm -hmm. Things can be chaotic. So how do you, you know, as someone that that handles this day in and day out, how do you find a a balance in, in your life with that? So that probably is, uh, aside from the uh, professional motivation, is the the personal motivation for me. It starts off with the idea that I genuinely, my goal is to be the best father that I can be, the best husband that I can be, the best mentor, um, the best community member, the best friend that I can be. But I know that in order for those things to be true, I have to find the right balance in my life to be able to focus on my professional life and also attend to what is equally important or or actually more important, my, my family and my community. And so 
that was a work in progress. And I would say I really only started focusing on that about five or six years ago. I used to be the kind of person that I would wake up in the morning, I would drag myself out of bed, I would fill up my coffee mug, get in the shower and then go to work. And when I would show up at work, I was not the person that I wanted to be. For me, that starts with a a foundation. The balance starts with building the right foundation. And I think that that foundation has to be balanced. So for me, it's equal parts sleep, diet, Mm -hmm. proper nutrition, exercise, and spiritual and mental health. And so I have a routine that I do pretty much every morning. I would say at least five mornings, sometimes six mornings a week, where instead of waking up, running to the coffee machine, getting in the shower and going to work, I try to start my day um, off a little bit more intentionally. And so I'll pour a cup of coffee. I read a passage from the Bible. I'll do a journal entry. And the journal entry might be, and I have, I've been doing this for five years, so I have each year separated. Oh, really? So it's kind of cool yeah. to be able to go back. And what, what I write is anything that's kind of floating in my mind, anything I'm working on or an idea or a quote that I heard that might be motivational or inspirational. And if I can't think of anything to write, then I do a gratefulness practice. So I write three things that I'm grateful for that okay. day. And it could be something really minor, like my morning coffee or feeling healthy or the sun shining or something like that. And then I do um, about 10 or 15 minutes of meditation and like, like some stretching or just trying to like yeah. loosen up a little Listening bit. Listening to the American Grown Podcast. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> Usually that gets, that's on the, on the what car. What is that? Okay, on the, the car way ride? To work. Okay, yeah. perfect. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so I think like that last component for me that yes. is the spiritual mental health. For me, that, that's like a practice of my faith mm-hmm. in a way. And I view my faith to me isn't an identity. I think that we are all way too complicated to fit neatly within uh, the boxes that we often put ourselves into or the boxes that other people want to put us into. So for me, my faith is a practice. It's not about who I am. It's about who I want to become. And so it's an ongoing, hopefully every day, you know, I'm not perfect. Some days I I don't, I miss it. And then some days maybe I don't get through each of those things. But then it's also about carrying that with me throughout the day and uh, setting up the right intention early in the day and then trying to carry that with me throughout my day, throughout my personal interactions Again, I, you know, I, I don't pretend that this was like, a, a, obviously it's been a five-year thing for me and I'm still mm-hmm. working on it a lot. And I'm not, I'm very, very far from being perfect. Yeah. Anyone who works with me will tell you that I come in some days and I might be a little bit of a bear or I might be frustrated about something. Right. Oh yeah. It happens to everybody, but it's, it's bettering yourself, you know, each day, even if it's a little bit. And there's a, a clip that went around, I think it's still pretty popular, of uh, Matthew McConaughey, and he was at one of the awards, and uh, people can look it up, but they had asked him, like, who does he look up to, or who does he aspire to be? And he says, I look up to me in in 10 years, me in 20 years, uh, you know, 15, 20 years, because he said, I'm always trying to better myself, and I'll never be able to reach that Mm -hmm. perfectness, you know, me in 20 years, because 
it always keeps keeps going. The bar keeps being raised, and I, I kind of feel like that's kind of what you're you're saying. It's a great clip, by the way. Um, for those look up Matthew McConaughey and uh, like who does he look up to or uh, aspire to be? You, that's you awesome. Yeah. There's a I heard this idea one time where it's like it's like finding the right aim in life, knowing that you're never actually going to get there, and that as you move towards it, yes. you're going to constantly be adjusting. So like, it's like the idea of trying to travel toward the North star. Well, you can see where the North star is and then you put your head down and you start walking. But when you look up again, you might need to readjust mm-hmm. the, the direction that exactly. you're Exactly. Yeah. Your motivation is your family, your community. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Again, that's something that's, it's hard to find time for it, it, it. That's the idea of balance. And that's another thing that's never a hundred percent like spot on dialed Mm -hmm. in because sometimes you're spending a lot of time at work and maybe you're missing out on your family. So you readjust toward your family or in the past I've signed up for too much for, I was on at one time, like three or four different boards, local boards. And I was spending too much time doing that. Not enough time focused on my family. Again, it's that idea of kind of tweaking things and adjusting things Mm -hmm. and trying to establish that that balance it's that that fine tuning because you don't want to spread yourself uh, too thin or or you know my father's known for at least telling me you don't want to burn the candle at both ends yeah you know because then you kind of lose in in the end because you're not spending enough time here and there so it's that fine tuning i would definitely agree with that i didn't want to skip this question i kind of want to to come back to it you know at uh, long bright bill attorneys at law what really separates you from your competitors? I'll give you my input just from our conversation here. You know, I would come to you, Fred, because I, I feel like you really do care just from our talk here. And I feel like you would give it your all, put the client above making money because you'd rather better them than have them come back and, and see you for the same thing. No, that's pretty, I mean, that's that's accurate. Yeah. I, I think it's it can be hard to answer that question without coming off as being conceited or cocky, but I think you're spot on. Like, I wouldn't be able to sleep at night if I was prioritizing money over quality and service. I don't think I really even have a choice in that way. I like the idea of putting in the work and creating a work product that people are happy with. Not only do I like it, I feel like I have a need. Like That's like a need for me. I have to be yeah. able to do that. It's a drive. Yeah. It's a drive. It's like if I didn't do that, I wouldn't be able to be happy with the person that I am. And I genuinely want people to be happy with, with what I'm doing for them. I want to do a good job for people. At the end of the day, noting again that I'm not perfect, if I make a mistake on something, then I will do... I will own it and do everything that I can to make it right. Truth and accountability are really important things for me mm-hmm. and not only in my in my personal life but also professionally. Yeah, so I want to close out with the last couple questions here. For all the listeners, are there any other items you wanted to to go over? I know we're going to if it's all right with you take some pictures of what we talked about earlier with Well, I do want to take a moment. We talked about this. I want to give a shout out to mm-hmm. um so when you we talk about community, the one organization that is still really close to my heart is the Lebanon Rescue Mission. It is a uh, a faith-based organization that provides services for underprivileged folks within our community. They they have a, a men's shelter 
they have short-term shelter and then a long-term discipleship program that they offer. There is a women's shelter as well, the Agape Women's Shelter. They have a free medical clinic, and then they have a program for senior citizens, the Senior Mobile Pantry, where they deliver uh, food to senior citizens in the community. I just want to give them a shout out. Not, I've been on the, the board there since 2014, and that organization has given me way more than I have ever given to, to it, just spiritually, psychologically, yeah. seeing what they do for people in our community. And it's not the only organization that does those services, but they work closely with other organizations. So Lebanon County Christian Ministries, right? Yeah, um, Jubilee, they okay. all work together to provide services for people who need them. And if you're interested in, in looking into that, uh, to the organization more, their, their website's awesome. They have a really good social media presence. I was just going to ask, how can people donate or, or get involved? What is the, the website, Lebanon Rescue Mission? If they just Google that, that'll probably If they just up. Google that, that'll Perfect. take them to the website, yeah. yeah. Great. Awesome. So before we close out, uh, how can our listeners follow along on your journey and connect with Long Bright Bill Attorneys at Law? So we have a website, longbrightbill.com. The best way to get in touch with me is probably either email, which uh, my email address is on our website, or Facebook. As of right now, that's the, probably the, the best um, social media outlet to access me. And one thing I'm, I, I don't want to get too far ahead because the plans are still in the work, but if you're interested in this, send me an email or send me a message on Facebook. I'm uh, working with a team right now to develop a 12-month program where we would send out each month a short article and a video completely free for helpful tips for estate planning and things that hopefully people will find useful and helpful. Um, again, there's no cost to it. It's just an email newsletter. It's something that's been on my heart for a really yeah. long time, on my mind. I've I can been tell thinking about it. I've wanted to do it. it. Yeah. I wanted to get this information out to people in a way that's like kind of, and I, like, I don't know, I, I have the content, but I don't have the creative solutions for getting it out there to people like video and, and that yeah. sort of thing. So working with a team to help me do that is like, it's really exciting to me because it's the first step toward making that goal a reality. So that's probably going to start within the next six months or so. So if you're okay. interested in that, then send me an email. We'll put you on the newsletter and get yeah. that information out to you. Sounds like nothing to lose. I mean, right. yeah. and, and why not do it now instead of when when that time does come and then you look back and you wish you would have done it. Yeah, and even yeah. and I don't I'm not sending this out either like the the goal is to get the information out to people. And yeah. if they have an attorney that they work with or um a financial planner or whoever, then use those people. For me, it's really about the idea of preventing those situations from happening on the back end where planning wasn't done. Yeah. Because that is what really, what really drives me is to get people to a place where they don't have to worry about those things. There you go. So Fred, I know you'd mentioned you're doing dry January. Now it's the end of February, we're almost going into March. So would you do me the honors and, uh, you know, like your grandfather Ted would say, 
Can we do just a, a sip of uh, some whiskey we'll to, one to, clo- one to close finger. it out? One yeah. finger? Okay, cool. <laughs> so uh, I got my Star Wars decanter here from my buddy uh, Dylan. Shout out to Dylan. He's a listener. I'll just give a little we'll give a little sip, and I'll get mine, and we'll do a cheers and close this out. So what kind of – is this bourbon? No, uh, it's Irish whiskey. Irish. It's uh, Conor McGregor, the MMA fighter. Oh, right, Proper right. 12. Um, so it's my next kind of favorite thing other than Old Forester. Let's close it out, and then we'll cheers. All right. Fred Long on the American Grown Podcast and the ColorTech Creative Solutions Studios. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. Cheers. Cheers. Fred, cheers. Thank you. Might have gave you a little bit more than... No, that's awesome. I'm a sipper, not a shooter. Okay. Perfect. That wraps it up. To see photos of today's guests and more content, just search American Grown Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. If you'd like to be a featured guest on the podcast, please direct message or email Austin at americangrownpod at gmail.com.